0: We looked last week at Paul's sermon in Athens in Acts 17. After that, Luke tells us, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them, so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation... They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his head and shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he departed from there and entered into the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing... Or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we have been cleansed by the blood of your son. We have sung your praise, we have heard your word. Prepare our hearts now to hear more of your word. Help us to see the new new facets of ministry, the new blessing on ministry that Paul experienced in Corinth. And help us to understand that your kingdom really is coming in this world. Even among unrighteous magistrates and obstreperous crowds and all the rest of it. Father, you reign. Help us to know that and submit to that reign and believe in it. Not to be afraid, but to speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of new things in this chapter minist, new place of ministry, he goes on to Corinth, new friends, new ministry patterns, new encouragement, and a new judgment in the church's favor. The pattern is shifting just slightly from arrive in a new city, teach in the synagogue, see immediate conversions, then get driven out by an angry mob, which is what has happened in the last several cities, to arrive, proclaim, see conversions, and survive the angry mob's attack and keep ministering. That's what happens to Paul here in Corinth. His ministry in Corinth builds on previous models, but it's longer, it's more successful, and it's more politically favored than his previous missionary stops. So the new place of ministry, Corinth. Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Athens was also in the province of Achaia. Athens was not the capital. It was a cultural capital, not a political capital. According to some estimates, Corinth was 20 times larger than Athens. Corinth sits on an isthmus, a very narrow neck of land. It's one of those favored types of cities that has not one, but two seaports. One on either side. One on the east, one on the west. And then south of Corinth, the land spreads out again and forms a big... So people, rather than sailing around that southern part of Greece, would come to Corinth. And smaller boats could actually be hauled up from the eastern port and rolled on logs over the hill and down to the other side to the western port and vice versa. So Corinth, a double port city, uh, notorious, of course, for its immorality in the ancient world. Some commentators said, oh yes, Corinth was Las Vegas, Sin City, every kind of vice imaginable. Others said, don't believe it. That was mostly Athenian propaganda. Corinth was their big rival, and the Athenians were better liars than the Corinthians. And so the Athenians pumped out all this stuff about how evil Corinth was. I'm not sure which commentators to believe, but certainly we know from Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, which he founded here in Acts 18, that they had their share of interesting people in the church well paul comes to corinth and there he finds a jewish guy named aquila from pontus now pontus is a province in asia minor that's right next to paul's own province of cilicia practically a neighbor it's how we would feel to be abroad and encounter someone from montana well you're not from wyoming but you know how we think that is who paul finds Uh, aquila is an immigrant and a refugee he had left pontus and somehow ended up in rome and then after some time in rome he was expelled claudius the emperor was tired of all the riots among the jewish people according to the roman historian suetonius suetonius says that the jews kept on rioting at the instigation of crestus now Maybe Crestus is some rabble-rouser, or possibly Suetonius heard it wrong, and what the Jews were rioting about was the proclamation of the gospel in Rome. They were rioting about Christ, and this was getting to the point where the emperor said, Enough! If you Jews can't figure out what you believe about Christ, just leave. Go. So Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. This is around... AD 48. So Aquila and Priscilla come to Corinth. And there Paul encounters them and he moves in with them and works with them. They were tent makers and Paul makes tents too. Now Luke has not mentioned this before. It's known that rabbis typically were instructed to have an additional trade so they could support themselves. And some portions of the Mishnah even say that a rabbi should not charge money to teach the Torah. So Paul, of course, didn't learn to make tents when he came to Corinth. He had already known this trade for a long time. Why has Luke not mentioned it? Well, because it's here in Corinth that Luke is showing us new ministry patterns. Aquila and Priscilla are new friends, Paul, presumably, is still without his team. He was in Athens without Timothy and without Silas. He goes on to Corinth, and he's still without them. So rather than ministering solo, he doesn't believe in solo ministry. He believes in team ministry, and he finds new teammates. Paul supports himself in ministry. He has a trade beyond being able to teach theology, and that trade is famous now, as being making of tents, some say that this was more broadly leatherworking of all kinds. Others claim that it was the black goat's hair from Cilicia that could be made into was well uh, highly desirable for tent fabric. I'm not sure, but tent making was a big trade because it was part of the military industrial complex. I don't know how many people liked to go camping in the first century, but. Lots of Roman soldiers wanted tents because they were out marching and bivouacking alongside the road all the time. And so if you made tents, you had solid state clients and even contracts perhaps where you could sell to the army and support yourself. So that's what Paul does. That's what Aquila does. That's what Priscilla does. And tent making has become a word used in Christian circles to describe any minister who supports himself with one trade, and then uses the money he gets from that to support himself in preaching and teaching on the side. So I was at a meeting of the Gillette Pastors Fellowship this past week, and somebody said, we should not have this in the daytime, we should have this in the evening, so that our bivocational, our tent-making ministry friends in town can be here. So we started to count up, and we counted at least nine pastors in Gillette who engage in some form of tent-making, as we would call it, who support themselves, at least partially, in some kind of secular trade and then preach on Sundays. So, Paul did it. Paul says, yes, you have the right to charge or you should be able to get your living from the gospel. But he himself had a trade and he worked that trade so as not to burden the church. Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, making tents during the week he persuaded once again Jews and Greeks. So the synagogue is a place to find people who care about the Bible. Paul finds them and he starts preaching Jesus to them. Silas and Timothy finally arrive they find Paul devoting himself to the Word. And it seems that likely Silas and Timothy came from Philippi with a large gift from the Philippian church that enabled Paul, in a new ministry pattern, to devote himself completely to the Word. He didn't have to work in the military-industrial complex anymore. He was able to spend all his time teaching the Bible So, that's a new ministry pattern. I mean, presumably Paul has been devoting himself to the Word in the other cities, but this is the first time Luke says it in so many words. When they opposed him, he leaves. This has become familiar. He announces once again the turn to the Gentiles. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He finds a house right next to the synagogue and starts teaching there. And Luke, as always, undercuts the turn to the Gentiles because in the next verse, a prominent Jew, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to faith. This is the most successful ministry to Jewish people that Paul has had in a long time. And it happens after he turns to the Gentiles. What is Luke saying? No, we're not done with the Jews. There's still gospel hope. The gospel is for the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And that's Paul's pattern. He announces that he's going to the Gentiles, but then he continues to minister to Jews and see converts among the Jewish people. God, the turn to the Gentiles is never final. God has not cast off the Jewish people and will not cast them off completely. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So that's new ministry patterns, devoting himself to the Word, not being in the synagogue, but right next to the synagogue. And then new encouragement. The Lord spoke to Paul by night in a vision. And God told him four things. First one, no fear. As he told Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. Now we think of the mighty Apostle Paul we think, why would God need to tell him this? Paul is not afraid of anybody. Paul stands before Caesar. Paul stands before kings. Paul stands before marketplaces and Athenians and Areopagites and these people and those people. And it doesn't matter where he is, he boldly proclaims, Jesus is Lord. And he starts riots in city after city after city, and that doesn't phase him. He goes on to the next city and does it again. But clearly, The Lord thinks that he needs some encouragement. Paul had natural human fear, like the rest of us. I was talking with one of you this week about Alex Honnold, this rock climber who climbed up the face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, 460 feet of sheer granite cliff, and he climbed it with no ropes, just some chalk on his hands, just walked up it like a fly. There's a great documentary showing him doing it. His friends were there with cameras watching him. But anyway, uh, Climbing Magazine paid for Alex Honnold to go into an MRI machine, and they found out that the part of his brain that registers fear is dark. There is nothing there. Whatever happened to him, he doesn't have normal human fear. And that's why he can walk right up the side of a 450-foot cliff with no safety ropes, understanding that one wrong grip and he'll go smash on the rocks below. That's not Paul. God didn't call 12 apostles who had no fear receptors in their brain. Nor did he call the rest of his people to be those who have no fear. He doesn't tell Paul, shut your brain off. He says, don't be afraid because I am with you and no one will hurt you. Here's a reason, Paul. Have faith in me. Trust me. Don't have fear because I promise you won't be hurt. This is the most common command in the Bible. Do not fear. God knows that most of us are too afraid to go up and jump on the railing out there four feet above the sidewalk and walk down it because we might get hurt. And that's good. There's a reason that we don't do these things. Fear is a good thing that keeps us alive. But God says when it comes to spiritual things, when you have a calling from me, don't be afraid to do You're calling, Paul. God's word to Paul is a word to us. Paul tells the Corinthians, in fact, that he was terrified when he got there. 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brethren, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. That's how Paul arrived in Corinth. And So God comes to him and says, Don't be afraid. When is the last time you were actually shaking with fear? Most of us go to great lengths in our lives to avoid situations that will cause us to shake with fear. We don't want to do that. We you know no one here has felt called to go to Hollywood and become a professional stunt person. But that's how Paul felt when he got to Corinth. And God's encouragement to him was no fear. No silence. Do not be afraid, but speak. How would the fear typically manifest itself, in other words? Keeping his mouth shut. It wasn't the presence of Paul the person that all these cities objected to. It was the presence of Paul's message that started the riots, that made everyone angry, that caused them to be driven out again and again and again from city after city. And so he had given in to fear, He would have shown it by not speaking. Not proclaiming Jesus. Just finding a few people who are already receptive and tell them. And don't bother telling the others because it just makes them mad. How does this relate to us? Don't be afraid, but speak. We are not called to be apostles. We are not called to go where no one else has gone Refused to build on another man's foundation to preach the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That was Paul's mission. It's not necessarily the calling of anyone in here. Though if it is your calling, you need to get after it. But I can say for sure that we are not allowed to be silent about our faith. If you have coworkers or friends or anybody that you're around regularly who doesn't know you're a Christian, you have violated God's command here. You've been afraid and you've been too silent. It's not our job to convert people, but we are witnesses with first-hand knowledge of Jesus. Only the Spirit can convert people. But to hide your identity, to let people think (coughs) that you're just like them is a violation of what God told Paul in this vision. Giving in to ungodly fear and being silent at a time when you really are called to speak. We aren't necessarily called to argue with people or to fight with them or to start riots. Sometimes that is the Christian's calling. It was Paul's calling. But we are definitely called to let it be known that Jesus is our Lord. And that's that's hard for us. It was hard for Paul. That's why God came to him in a vision and gave him new encouragement to keep speaking. Because God had two promises. No one will attack you so as to hurt you. Now what happens In the very next section of Acts. Oh, Paul gets attacked. (laughs) The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. He's hauled into court. No one will attack you so as to harm you. Not no one will attack you, but no one will attack you successfully. That's the promise of God here. Now is this promise for us? Yes, in a certain sense. Paul obviously gets physically harmed many times in various places. God is not saying there will be no physical harm, though there is no physical harm to him in Corinth. But the promise is that no one can take the faith of a believer, and I would say especially an adult believer. I think it is possible, perhaps, to destroy the faith of a child believer through various grievous sins. But, speaking to adults, God says, no one can spiritually harm you without your consent. You can't be made to sin. Your faith can't be destroyed without you agreeing to it. God is with us, and He won't let us lose our faith, without us consenting to that. We have veto power over that. So that should have been an encouragement to Paul. It was an encouragement to Paul. He continued there a year and six months. You won't be hurt in the line of duty. You might be attacked. The attacks will be unsuccessful. And then the second encouragement is that there's no lack of elect Corinthians. I have many people in this city. What does God mean? There's a huge church here, Paul. You need to serve it. No. There's a huge bunch of people here that will be converted through your ministry. So get after it. And this promise of God that He has elect everywhere is true of our city and every city. That's why we persevere and why we don't hide our light. Uh, People have often talked about how Mordecai Ham was converted and then he preached and he converted Billy Graham and then Billy Graham converted uh, many people and there are people here in this room who are believers today because they were converted by someone who was converted by Billy Graham. That is the kind of thing that God is talking about. There are many elect people in this city. Paul, if you teach here... You make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And there are tons of people in Corinth who will hear and believe. Don't give up. Don't give in to your fear. Don't say, oh, this is Corinth. This is the most wicked city in the Roman Empire. What on earth am I doing here? Instead say, God has lots of people in the most wicked city in the Roman Empire. So Paul said, was told, no fear, no silence, no harm, no lack of elect Corinthians. It's new encouragement. And finally, there's a new judgment in the church's favor. Paul stays for 18 months, sometime within that time frame. Gallio is sent out from Rome to be proconsul of Achaea, that is the one who governs the city or governs the province on behalf of the Roman authorities. Galio is the brother of the famous philosopher Seneca, who was Nero's court philosopher, and everybody loves Galio according to surviving reports. But Galio <laughs> arrives and the Jews think, "Well, this is our chance." They grab Paul, they drag him into court. Rather than specifically trying mob action, they try legal action. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And Paul is about to open his mouth and say what? No, I don't. I persuade people to worship God according to the law. They persuade people to worship God contrary to the law. But Galileo cuts it off and says... I'm here for wrongdoing and serious crime. You people can have all the theological arguments you want. I don't want to be a judge of such matters. I don't know anything about your Jewish disputes, and I don't care about your Jewish disputes. Now, the weird thing about Galio is that he says he will investigate all wrongdoing and serious crime. So as soon as he drives them out of court, what do they do? They grab somebody, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they engage in assault and battery, right on the street in front of the courthouse, because the judge had said, I will investigate all wrongdoing and serious crime. Gallio cared for none of these things. Gallio had a very enlightened attitude as a state prosecutor, We don't need to worry. The criminals will heal themselves. He didn't care. What is is Luke trying to say? This is kind of an odd way to end the Corinth section. Paul remained a good while and he took leave and sailed for Syria, says the next verse. Why does Luke wind up our story with this? Galio is of questionable political competence. The answer is, It's a decision in the church's favor, to a certain extent, because what is it saying? This is just a dispute within Judaism. Judaism is a permitted religion. You Jews can have whatever theological disputes you want, and the Roman state is not going to intervene and say definitively, the Christians are not Jews, and therefore do not have the protections of the Jews. Rather, the Roman state is going to say, work it out among yourselves. Not our problem. Now, there's reason to think that Gallio said that because he was lazy, not because he was just and fair. It becomes clearer when the assault and battery is committed, possibly even by the Jews on one of their own, because they're mad that he didn't successfully prosecute the case. Luke just says they all took Sosthenes. Some have thought that it's all the Greeks. Others have thought it's all the Jews. Some have thought it's both Greeks and Jews. Probably the Jews because that was the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. Then they all took Sosthenes and beat him. Later, Paul writes to Corinth with Sosthenes, leading many to think that after he was treated this way, Sosthenes said, you know, I think I'm better off with Paul. But Luke is telling us, new progress for the kingdom. The church, at least, is not meeting active political resistance. And as we'll see, this theme over and over, the rioters disregard civic order. The church benefits from civic order. So new patterns of ministry. Jesus is on the move, also in Corinth. Even in wicked cities, the kingdom is coming and driving back Satan's kingdom. So Luke is showing us that. Next time we'll see how Paul went and ministered here and there. Also, new people are coming online. Apollos, he ministers without Paul. Aquila and Priscilla minister without Paul. The message is spreading beyond simply Paul to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel came to Corinth. We pray that you would help us to submit to your kingdom, help us to have no fear and no silence, help us to make it clear that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to be always ready to give an answer regarding why we serve him and why we have hope in him. Father, thank you for your promise that we can't be spiritually harmed without our own sinful consent. And we praise you that you have many people in this city and in cities around the world. Lord, we pray for workers in the harvest field, people who will go and tell the elect about Jesus and see them be saved. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to use us in that endeavor, certainly right here in our own city, with our own children, with our own neighbors, with our own friends, and beyond, Lord. Take us where you want us to be, as you took Paul, and give us encouragement to have no fear and no silence. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.